Well, hello there. I'm Joshua Johnson, and the nightlight is on for Wednesday, January 24th, the day after the New Hampshire primaries. Everyone seems to be ready to anoint Donald Trump the nominee. I would not count Nikki Haley out just yet. I'll go over the results and tell you why I think she probably is going to stay in the race. Also, I've written a piece about the future of DEI that's rather personal. Conservatives say DEI programs need to end. I agree, but not the way that they think. I'll explain. Plus, they say that Barbie got snubbed at the Oscars. That's not quite correct. There's a little bit more to that that I think needs explaining. Go to nightlightjoshua.com for more information on the podcast, the Substack to pick up merch, or to put a few dollars in the tip jar. Hope everybody's doing well today. Hope that your Wednesday has been going well so far. Many thanks to those of you who took part in yesterday's Ask Me Anything live stream. That was very, very nice of you to show up. Sorry that everyone who wanted to be there could not make it, but I, I really appreciate those of you who were there. It will be available online later on for people to just to watch uh, informally. Let's dive in and talk about the New Hampshire primary. Hello to those of you who are watching on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. To those of you who are watching on X, on Twitter, please know that I cannot respond to your comments here on X because of the software that I use to stream with. So you should hop over to YouTube where there is a lovely community of people waiting to say hello to you and where I can see all of your questions, comments, or thoughts. We keep it civil over on YouTube. They are lovely people. Jump on over to that site. If you go to nightlightjoshua.com, you'll find the YouTube link and all of my other links to enjoy the show and to take part in the program, but welcome, good to see you on this Friday. Let's go talk about the New Hampshire primaries very briefly. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanna bring up one little thing that I, I think would be interesting to kind of talk about. As you may know, the, um, I, look, I, I am one of these people who likes to see accuracy and clarity and see things make sense. I know a lot of life does not make sense, but I think that so much of, of what we talk about these days gets kind of scrubbed down to lowest common denominator without a lot of clarity. And it's, it, it kind of doesn't make anything clearer or better. I think one of the examples of this, and there's more to this, and we'll talk more about this another time, but I just wanted to address it kind of early on before it got along too far, has to do with the Oscar nominations. Don't know if anybody's following the Oscar race. I just wanted to touch on this briefly, and then I will move on from this. But one of the things that I knew was going to come up had to do with the, the people who got snubbed and the people who got nominated. Now, to be clear... I have not watched all the movies this year. I've watched as many as I can, been busy, you know, adulting and entrepreneurying, I guess is the word. So it's been a little bit tough to watch everything that's come out. I did see the two big movies that got all the big buzz this year, Oppenheimer and Barbie. Loved them both. Did an episode of the podcast, the audio-only podcast, before the live stream started about the Barbie movie, which was... Phenomenal. If you haven't seen Barbie, it's streaming on Max. And Oppenheimer is streaming on Peacock, I think. Got to remember the little organizational chart in my head of the companies that own all the different streaming services and where they end up. But I believe Oppenheimer is on Peacock and Barbie is on Max. And they are very, very, very good. One of the things that always gets discussed around Oscar time are the people who got nominated and the people who did not. 
The Washington Post has their write-up in terms of the biggest 2024 Oscar nomination snubs and surprises. Some of the things that were surprising, well, let me just go through some of, of their notes. One of the things that was surprising is that Sterling K. Brown got nominated for the movie American Fiction. American Fiction is a very interesting film. I really want to see it about a... It's kind of like the movie Bamboozled, which came out years ago. It's about a black author who's trying to write work about the black experience that's more intellectual, and he gets disgruntled because works that are depicting kind of a baser, grittier version of black life are getting elevated by whites, and so he kind of tries to play within that. Sterling K. Brown got an Oscar nod for Best Supporting Actor for that, and that surprised a number of people. Leonardo DiCaprio did not get nominated for his acting in Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a very interesting story about the very first case that the FBI ever investigated. It's about the beginning of the FBI in a way, this case that has to do with Native American tribes that live on wealthy land that has oil underneath, and then a number of murders are committed by white robber barons, basically, who want to take the land to get the oil. That's what Killers of the Flower Moon is about. It's about the beginning of the FBI. And in the best actor race, many people believe it's Killian Murphy, who played J. Robert Oppenheimer in the movie Oppenheimer, brilliantly. And Paul Giamatti, who is the lead actor in The Holdovers, it's a movie about a kind of cantankerous university professor who is left on campus over the holidays with the students who don't go home. And it's it's a kind of a heartwarming comedy. Bradley Cooper for Maestro for playing the brilliant conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein. Coleman Domingo for playing Bayard Rustin and Rustin. Bayard Rustin is the man who taught nonviolence to Martin Luther King. And he's the organizer of the March on Washington. Bayard Rustin was a Quaker. He was a pacifist. He was an openly gay man. Yes, people in the movement knew he was gay. And that's why they had to kind of keep him in the back because the FBI would have basically run roughshod over the entire movement and said that they are, you know, associating with homosexuals in a pre-Stonewall America in which there was no public gay rights movement. Bayard Rustin was a very remarkable person. One of the things that Bayard Rustin said that always stuck with me was, we are all one. And if we do not know it, we will learn it the hard way. Very true. Very true. And then Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction, Leonardo DiCaprio did not get nominated for Killers of the Flower Moon. So that was kind of a surprise. But one of the other big surprises is that Greta Gerwig, who directed the Barbie movie, did not get nominated for Best Director, even though it was the highest grossing movie of the entire year. Also, Ryan Gosling got nominated for playing Ken, but Margot Robbie did not get nominated for playing Barbie, for playing the lead in the movie. However, America Ferrara, who played one of the real-world characters, America Ferrara, who we love, got nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which she totally deserves. Here's the thing, though, and this is, this is why I bring this up. One of the things that we talked about on the podcast, so if you've heard the podcast, you've already heard me say this, is that Margot Robbie's role in Barbie is bigger than playing the main character. And I think once I learned about this, I was much more, much more impressed with her. She's kind of remarkable in terms of the way that she made this thing happen and in the way that she got this movie done. Margot Robbie actually is not just the star of the Barbie movie. She did a profile in Vogue magazine 
in May talking about the Barbie movie. And in that profile, she talks about going to Mattel back in 2018, Mattel, the company that owns and makes Barbie, and talking to them about making a Barbie movie and bringing Greta Gerwig on. And so Margot Robbie is one of the producers of Barbie. And she got Greta Gerwig attached to the project to write it and direct it. And she starred in the movie. And why does that matter? Because the reports about Margot Robbie being snubbed are actually wrong. Actually, she did get nominated for something much more remarkable and I think much more important. She did not get nominated for Best Actress, but she did get nominated for, let me close this side window. She did get nominated for something much bigger. Margot Robbie is nominated for Best Picture. Because in the Academy Rules, if you are nominated for Best Picture, the people who receive the award are the producers of the movie. And there she is. David Heyman, Margot Robbie, Tom Ackerley, and Robbie Brenner. So Margot Robbie might not win Best Actress, but she, as an enterprising woman who made the film happen, could win Best Picture. I think that's much more significant. That this beautiful, goofy, silly, fun movie about so many things has been finally acknowledged. And the Academy doesn't seem to like to acknowledge pop culture comedies. But this time, amazingly, they did. That this wonderful film could get nominated, I think is fantastic. And the Barbie movie really, like punched me in the gut when I saw it. It's so funny, and then it gets so poignant, and it's so like back and forth, that by the end of the movie, I was like, I have to do an episode of the podcast on this. <laughs> and so this is back when I you know, did just pre-produced audio-only podcasts, and sort of like ground away for hours and hours making this audio masterpiece, instead of the kind of fly by the seat of the pants program that we're doing today, which you love so very much. And I, it just moved me. It was just very, very moving. I would encourage you, if you haven't heard it, go to the podcast. The episode is still there. Um, it all it begins with a conversation about the politics of masculinity, which I think is sort of the flip side of the whole issue with the Barbie movie, in conversation with a writer from Politico who did a piece about the politics of masculinity in 2023 and how some particularly candidates and, and – um, Politicos on the political right are talking about masculinity in ways that may invigorate voters, particularly young male voters who are looking for a smarter conversation about masculinity today. And then we break down the Barbie movie and my thoughts on the on the film. I won't spoil it for you because I'd like you to hear it, but I think a lot of people came out of the Barbie movie and also incorrectly said that it's a movie about the patriarchy. That's not quite correct. Patriarchy is definitely a factor in the film, which you know if you've seen it, but it's not about that. It's about something way worse than that. My perspective, and I explain that in the podcast, but I say congratulations. I would love to see, I would, could you imagine if Best Picture of the Year, if they had to grit their teeth and say that it's the Barbie movie? I think that would be absolutely wonderful for the Academy, though, you know, Oppenheimer was also a phenomenal film. Um, I will talk a little bit more about Oppenheimer later on this week um, because the, I don't know if you heard, but the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists who maintains the doomsday clock about the threats around the world 
has updated the doomsday clock uh, just this week, and they never have good news. They never, ever have good news. But now the news remains bad. Yesterday, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists announced that their doomsday clock remains at 90 seconds to midnight. Just for context, when the doomsday clock was created, they started it at seven minutes to midnight as a representation of how close they believed the world was to a nuclear disaster. It moved forward and moved forward. When the Cold War ended, they bumped it way back to 17 minutes to midnight. That is the farthest from midnight, meaning an actual nuclear attack, that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists ever put the clock. is 17 minutes to midnight. Now it's at 90 seconds. And the various issues that are connected to that range from climate change, the threat of nuclear weapons, particularly from Russia, biological threats, and not just like COVID, but the possibility of engineered biological threats, and the dangers of artificial intelligence, what that can mean. And AI cuts across biological threats, the scientific processing that would allow for the creation of some kind of a biological weapon, but also the impact of misinformation and disinformation. We'll talk more about both of those things later on this week, the prospect of, of of nuclear attack, particularly in Ukraine, and also the impact of AI on misinformation and disinformation. We'll get more into that as the week goes on, but we, and we can also talk about Oppenheimer, if it's, if it's a film you love, if it's a film you hate, if one of the movies you liked got snubbed or got nominated, or, or if you even pay attention to the Oscars. I know some people don't really like to talk about the Oscars because people, and, and if you feel this way, that's fine, kind of question whether or not the Oscars matter anymore. I think they do. I think it's, I think it's really easy to say the Oscars don't matter when you've never won one. And I think a lot of the people who, I suspect a lot of the people who are just like, oh, the Oscars, whatever, may be feeling that way because they want their own kind of acknowledgement. And I think it's easy when you feel, and I'm not knocking this, I can relate to this. I think it's easy when you seek acknowledgement for whatever arena you're in, whether it's movies or something else, and how many of us really work in the movies hundreds of thousands of people, but not everyone. I think it's easy to say that the Oscars don't matter when what you're really trying to say is acknowledgement doesn't matter. Achievement doesn't matter. And if you're frustrated because of your lack of achievements or your lack of acknowledgement, rightly or wrongly, it's easy to try to kind of delegitimize the whole thing as a way of easing your own pain. I don't judge that. I empathize with that. I know what that feels like. And I think it's hard sometimes to just let people have their day when you have never had yours. I don't think that's a reason for judgment. I think that's a reason for empathy and for acknowledgement and validation so that people can have their fun and that we can all kind of strive for big things, whether or not we win the trophy. I'm not a fan of participation trophies. And I'm not going to spend my life trying to catch someone else's brass ring. But I get it. You know, I get it. It's hard to kind of put one foot in front of the other and not get acknowledgement for it. So I don't know. We will see. We will see how the Oscars go when they air in, I believe, about a month and a half, roughly, on ABC. Let me go back through some of your comments before we keep going. I see Joseph wrote, the Academy really said, LOL, let's role play the Barbie sequel IRL. 
Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, based on where the Barbie movie ended, I would love to see a Barbie sequel. I'm just not sure what that would look like. I think the next Barbie movie maybe has to be about Ken because Ken was just everything. He was so wonderful in that movie. And Ryan Gosling felt almost typecast for it, which I don't know if that's a compliment, but it was, I found it fascinating. Uh, let's see. Oh, Joseph, I'm sorry. You posted more than one comment. Joseph also wrote, if I had a nickel, let me slide this down. If I had a nickel for every FBI origin story Leonardo DiCaprio starred in, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that that happened twice. Funny how that works. Yes. Um, but yes, Barbie is up for best picture. And you know what? I, I don't know if it would be best picture. Oppenheimer was pretty amazing. I know some people weren't, weren't digging it a hundred percent, but I loved it. I thought it was a really fun film, and I really enjoyed what I got out of it. So we shall see. We shall see. If you haven't seen it yet, see it. It's really good. Very long. And the end kind of, the end slows down quite a bit, but it didn't lose me because I understood, I think, where it was going. The Big Bang is kind of, in a three-act story, it's kind of the end of act two, and then there's more movie thereafter. So the climax is kind of a dialogue climax. It doesn't build up to the... That's not the end of the film, which I think is smart because you know the bomb's going to go off in the movie. So why would the climactic moment of the film be something you saw coming? That would be dumb. I thought the, the actual point of the movie was bigger than just the, the, the boom at the end, which I thought was smart. So check it out. See what you think. All right, moving on to the New Hampshire primary. Sorry, I just wanted to get that out of the way before we talked about anything else. So thank you, Barbie. Let's talk about New Hampshire. You probably already know how that turned out. Donald Trump did quite well in New Hampshire. He ended up with just over 54% of the vote overall, with pretty much all the votes counted as of the late, latest count from the Associated Press. Donald Trump finished with 54.4% of the vote. Nikki Haley finished with 43.3% of the vote. She did quite well in a number of counties around New Hampshire, so it wasn't a blowout as evinced by the overall vote total. Ron DeSantis dropped out just before the New Hampshire primary. He still got about 2,200 votes. Chris Christie, who had dropped out in Iowa, got, or Joe had dropped out around the Iowa caucuses, got 1,400 votes. Vivek Ramaswamy dropped out after the Iowa caucuses, got just under 800 votes. Nikki Haley did quite well in the state capitol. Concord, New Hampshire, where she got just about 52% of the vote. In Manchester, the largest city, Donald Trump did the best. He got just under 57% of the vote. The little hamlet of Dixville Notch, New Hampshire, which always votes first because they have to be first, not just because they say so, but there is a New Hampshire state law that says we shall be the first. Six people voted at midnight on Wednesday to begin the New Hampshire primaries and all six people went for Nikki Haley. None of them went for Donald Trump. And there were a number of counties in New Hampshire where Nikki Haley did quite well. In Lyme County, very, very small, but she got about 82% of the vote. Same with Hanover and Lebanon counties nearby. A lot of the other further south counties, Richmond County, Donald Trump got 72% of the vote. Winchester County, 72%. Farmington County in eastern Vermont, he got 71%. So there were a few areas where it was much more complete in terms of Trump versus Haley, but in the big cities, it was rather closer. New Hampshire is important, I think, because 
Iowa and New Hampshire are two very different kinds of primary states. Their electorates don't look the same. They don't vote the same. They feel different. They act differently. They want different things. And they don't all reflect the country overall. But Iowa is more reflective in terms of how conservative people describe themselves to be, how many people describe themselves as evangelicals, how many people are college educated. Iowa is much more reflective of South Carolina than New Hampshire would be. So if there's any indication of what may happen next, it's not New Hampshire. Also, in New Hampshire, you can vote whether you are a Republican or not. You can't be a Democrat and vote in the Republican primary, but you can be undeclared and vote in the Republican primary. And one of the findings that I think might put this in a different kind of a context, the CNN exit poll showed that 70%, seven in 10 people in New Hampshire who voted for Nikki Haley were not registered Republicans. Think about that. Seven out of 10 Nikki Haley voters in New Hampshire were not Republicans. They were independents. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything bad. It just means that she's got an appeal with independents. That's according to the CNN exit poll. Only 27%, though, were Republicans. And many of the states that we're going to see going forward do not have the kind of an open primary system like New Hampshire does. So if Nikki Haley is able to keep going because she's not appealing to mainline Republicans, how long can she keep that up? I don't know if she can keep that up very long. The exact opposite, according to the CNN exit poll, was the case of the people who voted for Donald Trump in New Hampshire. And again, I'm just talking about New Hampshire. 70% of them were registered Republicans. That to me kind of re reiterates what we already know, which is that he has a very strong claim to the Republican Party and it's just kind of getting clearer and clearer. CNN's exit poll, by the way, also found that of the people who voted for Donald Trump, Four out of five said that they believed his false claims about President Biden not legitimately winning the 2020 race. Of the people who voted for Nikki Haley, about the same amount said they believe that Joe Biden did win fairly over Donald Trump, which sidebar, can we come back for a second? Sidebar. I am beginning to wonder if asking that question needs to be reworded. I think the word legitimately might be an imprecise word to use when asking Republicans about the 2020 election. First of all, we have to decide what we actually still hope to learn by asking the question over and over again, number one. I'm not sure there's anything new to learn. Beyond that, I wonder if a better word than legitimately would be legally or lawfully. Legitimate kind of feels like, did he deserve to win? as opposed to, did he win by the rules? You may not have liked, you know, that, you know, the Buccaneers are not moving on to play San Francisco and the Detroit Lions are, but did the Detroit Lions win by the rules of the game? Yes. Did they win legitimately? If you're a Bucs fan, the answer might be no. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it feels like it's almost the wrong word to use in that situation, and I'm not sure what I'm learning from this poll anymore about did he win legitimately, it, it, it's over, <laughs> it doesn't matter. But do you understand what the rules of the game are? Are you asking Donald Trump to be the president knowing what the rules of the game are supposed to be? I think that's the bigger question, and I don't really, I don't really give a damn if you think that 
Joe Biden won legitimately. He won. It's, it's kind of over now. Did Tom Brady take part in a scheme to deflate footballs? Yes. Is Tom Brady one of the greatest quarterbacks who ever lived? Yes. Both of those things are true. The issue is the rules, not the merits. Did Joe Biden win by the merits? Maybe not. If you're a Republican, if you voted for Donald Trump, did Joe Biden win by the rules? Yes. Stop asking. I don't see the point of asking anymore. Maybe you do, but I don't, I don't see the point of asking anymore. With regard to New Hampshire, one of the things that I think that's worth noting about Donald Trump's win in New Hampshire came out in a write-up from the Associated Press. And here's the way that they put it. And this is, I think, worth noting. From the AP, never before has a presidential candidate won the first two contests on the primary nomination calendar, as Trump has now done, and failed to emerge as the party's general election nominee, substantially increasing the already quite likely prospect of a rematch between him and President Joe Biden. That's important. He won the first two primaries, and that is not necessarily, that that is new. Now, the Iowa caucus is not necessarily enough to say, oh yeah, he's got it. But the first two primaries, that's, that's a different matter. That is a very different matter. And I think that unless we kind of take that seriously, then then I don't think we have a clear picture of Nikki Haley's actual prospects going forward. They are not the strongest, but they're not impossible either. And I don't think that, I don't think that we should count her out necessarily. And I'll get to that in, in just one second. But that is worth noting, that he is off to a very strong start. Like him or not, he's off to a very strong start. Also, the write-up from the Cook Political Report has kind of put it to Donald Trump at this at this point. And again, I'm not a huge fan of just kind of presuming that somebody's got it in the bag, but I understand that, you know, I, I mean, I, I like Cook Political Report's analysis. I, I'm just not a fan of saying, well, I guess it's all over. It's almost as if we didn't learn the lessons from 2016 <laughs> about how unpredictable American politics can be. And anything can happen. I do, though, respect the analysis from Cook Political Report, and I think that the way that Amy Walter puts it is worth noting. In the piece that dropped today, Amy Walter writes, in early 2023, the conventional wisdom was the race for the GOP nomination would be between the newer, younger version of Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and the original but older version. Instead, the last person standing with Trump, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, represents not a new version of Trump, but more of the old guard of the Republican Party. And further down, even in New Hampshire, a state Trump lost in both 2016 and 2020, Haley was unable to turn electability into a winning message. As of early Wednesday morning, Trump appears to have won the state by more than 10 points. Haley succeeded in winning the college-educated independent voters the state is famous for, but... Trump swamped the former South Carolina governor among non-college, Republican, and conservative voters. For example, according to the AP Voter Survey, Haley carried white college graduates by 17 points. But Trump won white non-college voters by 34 points. And Amy notes, white non-college voters were 61% of the electorate. 
Haley swamped Trump among those voters who identified as independents by 24 points, but Trump won Republican voters by almost 50 points. Pause right there. And I want to be clear, they're refer she's referring to percentage points, not 17%, but 17 percentage points. So what this means is basically that Donald Trump is winning among the voters who they're both going to encounter in South Carolina, that that is much more of an indicative look at the way that South Carolina might go. On top of that, Donald Trump is already getting endorsed by the major players in South Carolina. He, when he appeared on stage, give me just one minute, let me see if I can find this article. When he appeared on stage in New Hampshire, he went on stage with a lot of the officials from South Carolina. They were standing on stage next to him. The governor, the, the lieutenant governor, the, the attorney general. I mean, like basically all of the officials in, New Hampshire, in South Carolina were side by side with him on the stage in South Carolina, basically giving their endorsement. Also, Ronna McDaniel, who is the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, has made it clear that she wants this kind of wrapped up. She wants to sort of move on with it. She spoke to Brett Baer and Martha McCallum on Fox News and said, and I'm quoting from the Hill newspaper, quote, I'm looking at the math and the path going forward, and I don't see it for Nikki Haley. I think she's run a great campaign, but I do think there is a message that's coming out from the voters, which is very clear. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump, and we need to make sure we beat Joe Biden, unquote. I have a huge problem with this. I do not like from either party, officials telling voters what to think. That is not cool. Democrats did it with Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. Now Republicans are doing it with Donald Trump over everyone else. Although granted, Donald Trump has, over the last few years, and Ronna McDaniel has been part and parcel with this, moved the Republican Party behind himself in word and in deed, policy-wise, infrastructure-wise. The Republican Party right now is built to favor Donald Trump. Nevada, the caucuses that are going to happen here are built to favor Donald Trump. We're not even doing a Republican primary, really. The state of Nevada moved to primaries for Democrats and Republicans. Republicans said, screw you, we're going to do a caucus anyway. So it's already kind of leaning toward Donald Trump structurally. I just don't like the idea of any party official saying, can we please stop voting now? No, <laughs> no, we can't stop voting. We're not done voting. It's a little strange. It's more than a little strange, but uh, we'll see. So the party is very much coalesced around Donald Trump formally, in very formal ways. Beyond that, though, I do think there can be a path forward for Nikki Haley. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal today from the editorial board about Nikki Haley's chances. And I think that the way that they put it, let me just find the part. Here we go. Let me just find the part where they are referring to why she might have a chance to move forward. Wall Street Journal editorial board, Nikki Haley earns the chance to fight on after New Hampshire. Notes that she told her supporters last night that, quote, we are just getting started. Said she'll contest the primary in her home state of South Carolina on February 24th. Now, again, to be clear, remember, the governor 
of the state of South Carolina, Henry McMaster, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, who ran against Trump as well, endorsed Donald Trump before the primary. And on stage in New Hampshire, all of these South Carolina officials were standing with Donald Trump on stage in New Hampshire before the South Carolina primary to send the message of like, yeah, and we're going to take that too, just to be clear what she's walking into. Back to the Wall Street Journal editorial board piece. The pressure from the Trump GOP establishment to leave the race will be intense with threats to her political future if she declines to do so. She is only 52 and could plausibly make another run in 2028. But there's a case for contesting South Carolina, and even beyond that, if she can withstand the abuse and fill out her campaign message. That, I think, is also the key, if she can withstand the abuse. Further down, only recently did the race become one-on-one, and only recently has Ms. Haley responded to Mr. Trump's attacks by making a case against him. She won 62% of voters who decided in the last few days as the field consolidated. According to the exit poll, Mr. Trump won three out of four Republicans. Ms. Haley won 60% of independents. Pause right there. That's another thing that I think she's got to do. She's been a bit more tepid about arguing against Donald Trump directly. And I get why she's doing that, right? I understand she wants to try to make some of the voters who are on the fence for him come over to her side, and indeed some did. That's why she did as well in North in uh, New Hampshire as she did. She's going to have to step that up. And the Wall Street Journal notes that. To make, it a, to make it a race, Ms. Haley will have to toughen and expand her message. She's been reluctant to make a harder case against Mr. Trump, lest she alienate people who voted for him twice. But now that it's one-on-one, she has to give Republicans reasons to favor her. That should include a more focused vision of what she would do as president. Further down, her foreign policy vision is strong and a contrast with Mr. Trump's growing isolationism. But her domestic reform agenda is a list of generalities. While Mr. Trump is clearly identified with shutting the U.S. border and a good pre-COVID economy, Ms. Haley has never provided Trump voters from 2016 and 2020 a compelling reason to choose her, other than that he's too old, too divisive, and would be an immediate lame duck if he wins. All true and essential points to make, but not enough. Pause right there. I think they're right. I think the editorial board is correct in terms of what the missing piece is. She's really super clear on foreign policy, and I get why. She was his UN ambassador, and there are a lot of international threats right now that we need to be talking about. Ukraine, China, Russia, Iran, the threats to Israel, and so on. The border, I mean, there's all kinds of of international issues for the U.S. to deal with, regardless of who becomes the president. Domestically, I don't think that's enough. I think if you're going to beat Donald Trump, you're beating him in the realm of make America great again, not make America great in the world again. His whole thing was, and he said it on the campaign trail, he said it in his inauguration speech. speech. I was there at the National Mall as he gave his inauguration speech, covering it for NPR. He said it over and over, America first. So what is Nikki Haley's America First policy? She's talked about how supporting Israel in its fight against Hamas is good for America's security, that they are good neighbors in a tough neighborhood. She's also talked about that with regard to Ukraine, that if Russia can take over Ukraine, they have said that Poland and the Baltics are next. Those are NATO states, and that means the U.S. has to go to war to defend them. She's correct in saying that. That's all well and good. What about the price of gas? 
What about the rent? What about sending my kids to school? Those are the things that Donald Trump was able to weaponize as a way to build his political base. And I think those have worked really well for him. I'm not sure how she's gonna counteract that. She probably can somehow, I don't know exactly how. She doesn't pay me for answers, so I'm not gonna give them. But that's, I think, the real challenge that she's gonna have to deal with immediately. Does that mean that Nikki Haley's campaign is over? Should she just kind of roll over and, and let this go? Honestly, I think she's got two more factors that might maybe mitigate in her favor. One of them for sure will, because it always does, <laughs> no matter who the candidate is. The other one, I, I, I've got kind of a sideways view on how this might affect Nikki Haley and the race in general. It, it's one of America's most prominent political voices who is jumping back into the fray. And I think that might actually work for Nikki Haley, maybe. I'll explain when we come back. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Good to be with you today. Please do go to nightlightjoshua.com for more links, to follow me on social media, to subscribe to the podcast, to check me out on Substack, especially today because I've got a new piece there, to check out the merch in the Nightlight store logo merch, as well as our gullible ain't sexy t-shirts, to put a few dollars in the online tip jar, or to contact me through the contact me form. Yes, I actually do read those contacts, and I very much appreciate them. This is the same as the Linktree site, so I created a direct web address that will replace that long, complicated web address, it takes you to the exact same spot. Nightlightjoshua.com is a much easier place to go and find all of that information. So if you have that site bookmarked, the bookmark will still work. You don't have to change it, but this site will take you there as well directly. Let me go back through some of your comments before we continue. And I do want to finish this up and then move on to talking about DEI. I want to get to, where was it? Give me one second. Here we go. Holly asked, was Trump's inaugural carnage a threat or a promise? I actually just went back and looked up the transcript to see what he said. I remember when he said that and I was standing there kind of near the National Mall and I was like, what? What he said was, and give me just one second, I'm just pulling up the transcript from the National Archives from what he said, there we go. He said, quote, and here's the, the context if you're not familiar with, with what she's bringing up. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their families, and good jobs for themselves. These are the just and reasonable demands of a righteous public. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. An education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of knowledge. And the crime and gangs and drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and it stops right now, unquote. So that's the context of what he said. I don't know if it was a threat or a promise as much as it was in a metaphor. It was an image. But 
you know, I, I think that some of what he said, well, all of what he said resonated with his voters, with the people who chose him. And there is some, I mean, some of these things we, all, we know are happening. We know there are rusted out factories. We know that there are families trapped in poverty, um, which should be noted. I'm sure Joe Biden supporters will say, yeah, but that expanded child tax credit lifted many of them out. So that is something that I will be interested to see on the campaign trail if people bring up or they try to kind of hit Donald Trump on and say, okay, we're, you talked about this in your previous inaugural where are you? Where's the results? Education system flush with cash? Public education? <laughs> Which one are you referring to? That is not, I mean, look, I have, I have public educators in my family. I do not remember them ever being like, good news, we're going to take a second trip to Fiji this year. Yay, mommy, daddy, you're the best. I love you. Not never. So I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to there. Crime, gangs, drugs, yes, we know that's an issue. Although now the drug crisis in our country largely is as a result of fentanyl, which is directly connected to our tremendous use of oxycontin and oxycodone and similar drugs like that and the withdrawal from that that fentanyl filled the gap for. So it's a variety of things. Worth noting though, there's been some reporting in the last few weeks in terms of just carnage, just raw crime in the country a number of crimes in America are down and have been dropping for decades, particularly violent crime. Violent crime in this country has decreased a lot in the last few decades and even in recent years. Property crimes, that's a moving target. Some cities are dealing with dramatic levels of property crime, including those smash and grab flash mob crimes. You know, those have gotten worse in some places, but I don't know that that's connected to poverty necessarily. Some of it is, but I don't know if there's not also a nexus to organized crime there. Because there is, there's a challenge in terms of regulating retail sales and theft prevention for retail businesses. And so some of the concern is that what's being stolen is being stolen to resell online. That's not the same as someone who puts a gun in the face of a gas station owner and says, empty out the, the register. That's a different level of crime. The act is, is similar, but the intent and the motivation and the nexus to other actors varies dramatically, including people in other countries. So it's not quite the same nature of crime as insular inner city low-level, mindless crime. This is a very different level of criminality. And I don't know, I don't know what we do about that. I don't, I don't really know what we do about that. Also, I do, <laughs> y'all think I don't notice these things, but I see them. Skylar the writer, hello, good to have you. She wrote, we could have avoided all of this had y'all nominated Beyonce like I said, but y'all were like, no, she's not a politician. Y'all ain't right. Sarah commented, she may have had more administrative and organizational experience. Yes, indeed, she would have. And then I like Joseph's answer. Joseph writes, Beyonce Swift 24, the heiress ball version. Oh my God. Let me tell you something. <laughs> the children would be voting. They would be the largest voting block in the world. We could elect Beyonce and Taylor Swift to literally run the world. Because as we know from Beyonce, who run the world? 
Exactly. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, let me get to this comment from Nature Ba. I think I'm reading your your screen name correctly. Hello, by the way. Welcome. I don't think I've seen you in the chat yet. Welcome. Good to have you here. And forgive me if I'm butchering your screen name. But Nature Ba, I think I'm reading this correctly, writes, and we'll talk about DEI in just one second, writes, y'all have DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, for the likes of people like Kamala Harris. Just saying. General public service announcement, vote on merit, not race or gender. And then clarified, I guess I meant to say Kamala Harris was never qualified for a position in the White House, but was selected based on qualities completely devoid of merit. First of all, thank you for commenting. I appreciate that it can be difficult sometimes to say something spicy when you're commenting for the first time or when you're not sure how it'll be received. So I would rather you say it than not. And I appreciate you saying it in a way that I think was sharp, but not necessarily rude or nasty. So thank you for that. I do wonder, though, how you feel about Donald Trump getting elected without qualification. He's never been an elected official, ever. Kamala Harris had been the district attorney in San Francisco, California's state attorney general, and a United States senator before she was the vice president. So I do kind of wonder how you would feel about that and whether it is categorically the same or whether the calculus is different because the candidate is white, whether the calculus is different because the candidate is male. That doesn't make you racist or sexist, but it might just affect the way you filter what you're seeing, and it might be something to notice. I don't think Kamala Harris was the worst possible choice for VP, although I don't think she was necessarily the only choice. Was she a bad choice? She got off to a real rocky start in DC. She had a lot of learning to do. Everyone who becomes a president or a vice president will tell you there is no way to fully qualify yourself for that job. Everybody stumbles. And Kamala Harris certainly had her stumbles. She has turned a lot of them around. By all accounts, and I feel this way looking at her as well, she seems a lot more grounded now than she did. She has a very different grasp of the issues and the job than she did. She feels much more like she's got the core competencies of the VP in the job just in her ability to navigate policy, to backstop Joe Biden, to articulate his agenda, to continue to speak on his behalf to kind of get the message of the administration out. Whether you like their policies or not, I think she's gotten much better at being able to do that. Now, was Mike Pence more sort of died in the wool, ready to go on day one as VP? Yes. Mike Pence was perfect for Donald Trump as VP. He had been, you know, he had been in legislature. He was the governor of Indiana. He understood how things worked before he got to being in the White House or for being in, well, in the executive offices, I should say. So I get that. And I think that Mike Pence was exactly the right kind of VP for Donald Trump because he was never going to upstage Donald Trump. Donald Trump was always going to be out in front. Mike Pence was always going to be leading the Amen Chorus, and he understood policy. And he had that kind of like ramrod straight, very upright, thoroughly conservative credentials that, Joe, that, that Donald Trump needed to legitimize his candidacy. I don't know that Kamala Harris adds that for Joe Biden the way that Mike Pence added it for Donald Trump. So in that regard, I can also concede like, okay, maybe there might have been a better choice who people could look at and go, what are you 
what are we getting out of Kamala Harris? And that is one of the things that she had to overcome very early on in her vice presidency. Like, what do you bring to the table? Why are you, why you, right? I think the Biden administration in some ways could have done a better job in retrospect of really explaining why Kamala Harris was practically in an executive sense necessary for the Biden agenda. It was clear to see, for example, why Joe Biden was necessary for Obama's agenda made perfect sense. Joe Biden was the guy who knew everybody in Washington and could get everything done. Barack Obama had the vision. Joe Biden had the experience, hand in glove. They worked together perfectly. I don't think that the Biden administration did a good enough job, particularly in the early days of the administration, really articulating what Kamala Harris's expertise was going to be. And they had a bunch of options. Kamala Harris comes from a criminal justice law enforcement in, in background. So she could have been on that tip. And that could have been one of the things that they really were rocking and rolling on from the very beginning, but they, they kind of didn't do that. And a lot of it had to do with is Kamala Harris like ready for Washington and is she is she settling in or does she know what she's doing or is she able to run her you know her team behind the scenes? It, it it turned into all of this like Washington behind the scenes West Wing intrigue, which is just goofy. Real, but also distracting. So I think in that regard, I hear you in terms of Kamala Harris not really being presented as a great asset. But I think she brings a lot. And I think if there is a second term for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, presuming that she remains on the ticket, presuming that he keeps her on the ticket, I don't know why he wouldn't, but who knows? Stranger things have happened. I think she will have an easier time being able to really like run interference for him in a variety of other ways. The other difference is they don't really need to have her do that. All Kamala Harris is really needed to do in the legislature is be the tiebreaker vote. As long as she's the tiebreaker vote, that's cool. And she has done her job in that regard. But a lot of what all had to be done was done by the whole administration working through various policy disagreements with Republicans. But remember, Republicans in Congress have been a basket case for the last few years. They can't get their own act together. So it's been really easy for Democrats in Congress, because they had the, the majority of both houses before the midterms, to do what they wanted. And Republicans could not mount an effective pushback until the midterms, when Republicans took the House. But even then, the president's been able to get things moving because of the dysfunction within the Republican Party. So the need for her to be able to kind of lean on people or help whip votes in the Senate has not been there because Democrats have held the Senate throughout the Biden presidency. You see what I'm saying? So it's, I understand where you're coming from. I think if you're going to view it that way, you got to view it for the reasons why someone gets in the job and for the work they do on the job. That's where I think a lot of this kind of gets messed up. You know, it's one thing if you say, okay, we want more people who look like this or come from this place or are part of this group, and we want to get them in the door. Great. You're in the door. That's part of it. The other part of it is what happens once you're there. And I think Kamala Harris may have gotten in the door for reasons that, I don't know, that, could she have been, could they have picked a stronger VP? Yeah, maybe. But once she got in there, she has worked to try to improve her role in the administration, in my view. Could it be better? It could always be better. Will she be on the ticket for, for 2024? I imagine so. I don't see why not. Is she a drag on the Biden administration? She had a few moments where she seemed like a distraction 
but I don't think she's been a drag. And I think as time has gone on, she's settled into the role much more usefully and much more productively. But whether or not she's able to convince Democrats that she's an asset to Joe Biden in 2024 and will be a reason for them to reelect him, that remains to be seen. I don't know how they make that case, considering that they haven't really made a strong case leading up to now, but who knows? We will see. We will see. Appreciate you raising the points. I hope that this helps. Whether you agree with me or not, I hope I've kind of fleshed it out a bit, but we shall see. We shall see. Let me get to one more point from, oh, let me go back to Skylar because I see Skylar, you responded. It scrolled on me right before I clicked on it. Skylar wrote, I'm no VP Harris fan, but how is she not qualified to be in the White House? Also, I filter her success as VP through the lens of Biden's leadership. Biden hasn't supported her the way Obama did him. I love how when people of color, especially black or women are involved, people need to avoid voting through a DEI lens. But when it's just voting for white guys or just hiring them, it's assumed to be on merit. I hear you on that. And that is why I wanted to talk about DEI going forward. Wonderful segue, Skylar. Thank you very much. So the fight over DEI continues, and I wanted to get into it because I would like this fight to end. And I think I can help end it. Grandiose claim, I know, but hear me out. One of the latest moves in this has to do with Elon Musk. You may remember that not too long ago, he co-signed a tweet in which someone said something that was rather thoughtless against Jewish people. Jewish communities have been pushing the exact same kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them, and so on. And Elon Musk responded, you have said the actual truth. It's an interesting tweet because it kind of separates Jews and whites and creates a tension there, which is interesting. The interesting thing there also, the tweet that was above this in the thread is a beautifully powerful video that's about stopping anti-Semitism. So some people have wondered, well, is Elon Musk responding to the original video or to the nasty comment that followed it? It looks like he's responding to the nasty comment that followed it, but you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, watch the video later, but it's, 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 it's a very powerful piece. So anyway. Elon Musk just visited the concentration camps at Auschwitz and Birkenau. He was there as part of an event for the European Jewish Association, their conference in Krakow and Poland, partly responding to this. But he also continued his campaign against DEI programs, saying that they are, in his words, fundamentally anti-Semitic that DEI programs are, he said, hold on, just pulling up the quote, always be wary of any name that sounds like it could come out of a George Orwell book. That's never a good sign. He went on to say, sure, diversity, equity, and inclusion all sound like nice words, but what it really means is discrimination on the basis of race, sex, sexual orientation, and it's against merit. And thus, I think it's fundamentally anti-Semitic, unquote. He also confirmed that he does indeed write all of his own posts on X, which, why wouldn't he? All you need is your thumbs. You don't even need a brain. You just need two thumbs. So, 
DEI against merit, fundamentally anti-Semitic, Orwellian in his view. Okay. I'm not sure how it is fundamentally anti-Semitic. Um, I think it's easy to just kind of call something anti-Semitic and, and denounce it on that basis without really explaining why. I don't see how DEI is fundamentally anti-Semitic. That seems a little broad, but that's his view, I guess. But Orwellian, I think he needs to read 1984, but maybe that's his view. But I, I, I also hear again the argument about it being against meritocracy, against this idea that people should be able to make their way through the world based purely on their merit and not on any categories or you know classifications that they are within. Granted, I get that. And I, 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 you know, merit would be a great way to judge people's achievements. Why isn't that the case? Well, I've been thinking about it, and I decided to write a little something for my page for Substack. I don't know if this will solve the problem. I don't know if this will make things better or easier. But I think that there is a worthwhile conversation to have about the nature of DEI. I've just written a piece for my Substack, which is uh, nightlightshow.com, called How to End DEI Forever. And it's a point of view that I'm not sure people are going to love, but I'm going to share it with you. Now, before I do this, I know I do long segments on this show anyway, but I just want to read you this piece. It, it, it won't be any longer than any of the segments I've done. It's not an hour-long read. And hopefully it'll be an interesting read. There's some visuals in here. I'll share with you some of the visual aids as we go along. But it, I think that there is a conversation to be had about the end of DEI. No one wants for us to be, at least I don't want, for us to be in the tension that we feel around DEI forever. I don't think that's in anyone's best interest. And I think that the people who are serious about saying DEI programs need to end need to have a path forward. And I think there is a path forward, and I'd like to try and articulate it. I just dropped the link to this in the chat if you'd like to follow along. If not, I will just present it to you in as entertaining a fashion as I can. I, uh, I won't leave it on the screen the whole time. But I will, I will go back to it with some of the, the pertinent visual aids, and hopefully that'll be useful in hearing it. So, how to end DEI forever. I feel like, <laughs> story time, children, story time. Today's tale is called The End of Diversity and the Dawn of Meritocracy by Dr. Seuss. I, I didn't mean to kind of say it like that. Gather around as we talk. But anyway, that's, that's where this story is going to begin. And it starts, the display image is just this screen grab from Instagram. I blacked out the person's name and their image just to kind of protect their identity because why rain down destruction and, and hate on them? And they wrote, basically, why don't we quit talking about it? And that's what, what sparked all of this for me. This one comment got me thinking like, can I respond to this in a way that's thoughtful and not just kind of to blow them up? and to make them feel stupid for saying, I don't wanna have a conversation. Can I have the conversation about ending the conversation? That's really what this is about. Maybe we can. So, how to end DEI forever 
and it reads, conservatives argue that diversity, equity, and inclusion programs need to end. I agree. Some may not want me to say this, but I know how to eliminate them for good. Right-wing commentators frequently rail against so-called woke culture, a liberal plot to keep America from becoming the colorblind meritocracy it could be. More recently, Harvard alumnus Bill Ackman has pushed hard against DEI programs, but the core of it has been issues of diversity, from problems with fighting anti-Semitism on campus to the very nature of Harvard's DEI programs. Some folks consider the topic a constant irritation. Consider this Instagram comment taking issue with me talking recently about America's history of racism. Why don't everyone just quit talking about it all the time? Damn, it happened, what, 200 years ago? Let the past stay in the past. I get it, man. It's a drag. Racism, bigotry, and hate are terribly uncomfortable things to talk about. Granted, it's not an argument applied evenly to tough subjects. Imagine the outrage if someone said, Jesus, every day it's like cancer this and cancer that. Can we please not spend every waking minute talking about it? Except the cancer of bigotry is closer to being cured than ever before in American history. And we could be the generation that wipes it out. Ain't that something to shout about? Still, it's not an entirely unfair question. Why don't people quit talking about it so much? Why can't the past stay in the past? Part of it comes from a sense that nothing is ever good enough for DEI advocates. They feel like there is an impossibly high standard America is being asked to meet, and anything short of that is unacceptable. Where does that standard come from? This kid knows. Him and his big ears. Lord. I grew up in the early 80s, when black culture and consciousness were evolving quickly. We had come through a time of civil rights and social awakening, surviving the tumult of the late 60s and riding a newfound willingness to discuss race in new ways. Norman Lear was about to give way to Bill Cosby and Arsenio Hall. CNN was about to show us the world, and BET was about to show us my world. Roots brought us to our knees, and hip-hop got us on our feet. New challenges emerged, including AIDS, crack cocaine, and President Ronald Reagan's stereotype of the welfare queen. It was a time of great promise, great problems, and here's the key, great pressure. When I was seven years old, PBS debuted Eyes on the Prize, a landmark docuseries charting the civil rights movement through the eyes of the people who lived it. I watched all 14 hours of it. My mother, a public school librarian, made sure I had access to that and any other materials about the black experience that I wanted. She felt this cause very deeply, having studied at Florida A&M University and HBCU during the late 60s. Mom was on campus when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, watching her classmates melt down with unresolvable rage. I watched Eyes on the Prize in rapt fascination. It was like going back in time, but I knew the time travelers. Did mom really go through that? Did my grandmother actually get treated that way? If this is what things were like then, what will they be tomorrow? That's why I was singing in the ICY, Inner City Youth Multicultural Choir, rocking my kente cloth sash, to shape that tomorrow. I was learning all about my history and heritage, about Kwanzaa, about social justice, about my deep well of human value against the benthic depths of dehumanization. More practically, I was learning how to present myself in public honorably and impressively, 
Presentation, coordination, elocution, and obedience went a long way toward counteracting the stereotypes of black people. It took me a while to realize how resilient those lowered expectations are until it dawned on me how very articulate I was. Frankly, I didn't realize what I was doing. I was just imitating the people on TV. But it drew two powerful reactions that made the imitation stick. Black elders took enormous pride in it. Whites expressed astonishment, sometimes bemusement. I don't remember the day that I realized, you speak so well and you're so articulate, were backhanded compliments born of astonishment at the unexpected. I just remember that it hurt. But what could I do? Start talking more ebonically? So non-black people weren't so stunned by me and my black friends, friends would stop teasing me for sounding white? Is that the best I could hope for? My uncle, King Wright, lived to be 98. I visited him often at Miami's VA hospital, walking down long and winding corridors to the nursing home in the back. He knew I was working for the Miami Herald in its partnership with WLRN Public Radio. Every time he saw me, he lit up smiling warmly and laughing buoyantly, the joy he got from my work in how I carried myself and my good reputation, I wish everyone could feel that just once. In a way, this pressure is healthy. It made me resolve to live the best life I could because one day I could end up in the same place as him. If I spend my last days with little companionship but my thoughts, I want them to be warm memories, not icy regrets. That's still my goal, and I'm still working on it, but I won't give up. What I later learned, what poisoned this pressure for me, was that it doesn't have to be this way. White kids don't usually feel pressure to succeed for the sake of all whites everywhere. Of course not. Primarily, that obligation is expressed by mom and dad and reflected in the social cues of their neighborhoods and communities. In that way, the idea of working hard and doing your best is a self-sustaining virtue. Diligence will bespeak your merit to others and you will find success. For many people of color, our pressure was not just familial. It was cultural. The opportunity had finally presented itself to elevate ourselves to something resembling equality. A new day was dawning and we could be the generation to feel its full warmth for the first time but the context was racial justice. And justice exists in the context of the crimes committed against black people for centuries. Progress never rolls in on what Dr. King called the wheels of inevitability. It takes work. And now I was working with tools and skills that my forebears could have never imagined. Gone were the days when we hoped our simple good example would be enough to convince racists not to be racist. That idea of moral suasion came and went. Instead, we didn't have to behave in such a way that others would give us what we wanted. We could just make it for ourselves. We could counteract the images of black failure with acts that conveyed black excellence. Getting straight A's was more than just a sign of my own smarts. It was a rebuke to the long-standing assumption that blacks are less intelligent. Excelling at sports was more than just a display of ability. It was a rebuke to the stereotypes that kept blacks out of leadership roles on all kinds of teams, athletic and otherwise. Speaking in public was more than just a powerful means of self-expression. It was a rebuke 
to those who claimed most black people had neither anything meaningful to say nor the skills with which to say it. If that seems like an incredibly unfair amount of pressure to put on a child, you're almost right. It's an incredibly unfair amount of pressure to put on a race. When you're not part of a marginalized community, and I include economics in that as well as race, your life's context is more likely to be about continuing a pattern. Prosperity preceded you, prosperity must follow you. Minorities have the opposite obligation to break a pattern. Calamity pushed us down, you must lift us up. This might clarify why some people denounce DEI programs as needlessly fixated on the past. Even Bill Ackman says he didn't think anti-Semitism was that big a problem until the aftermath of Hamas's attack on Israel. His context was dramatically different until he couldn't avoid talking about it. Well, guess who couldn't avoid talking about racism from the day he was old enough to listen? Me and every other black child who grew up with me. Not because some woke social justice warriors were drown droning on about it all the time, but because our parents and our grandparents told us we like many of my beloved Jewish brothers and sisters, were also admonished to never forget. Frankly, I suspect many black folks are carrying some trauma over all of this. The stories of Jim Crow, images of lynchings, and the spirits of dead slaves are inseparable from our existence. They give our story its richness and flavor, but that strange fruit has a bitter sting. How can that not leave emotional scars? And we're so used to them that we probably think they're normal. They're not. No one should have to bear them. Future generations will, I hope, be born without them, but we're not there yet. And we'd love to be. But the sheer pain of our history still hurts. Generations died with the double despair of their own failure to change the world and not living to see us succeed, if success was even possible. And that despair, tinged with hope, cries out to us from the ages, urging us to speak in their memory, you are charged with the highest mission of our people, liberation. We could not achieve it, but we laid a foundation for you. We cared for you, provided for you, prayed and cried for you, sometimes bled and died for you. Nothing is more precious to us than you. All we have is you. And now we are counting on you to break the cycle so that our people never go through this ever again. If you spoke in the name of your grandparents, what would it take to silence you? Your colleagues of color may be carrying layers of pain that they never talk about. What you might learn if they leveled with you might bring you to your knees. DEI programs are born of deep generational traumas. These programs will end when those traumas end. I believe it can be done. Here are the three steps that I would recommend first. Everyone in this debate should make sure they're actually having the same conversation based on the contexts they bring to the table.
That means telling your stories to one another. Mr. Ackman and I may see DEI very differently, but it means so much to hear him talk about his father's dying wish that he take anti-Semitism much more seriously. That pressure puts his words and actions into a meaningful context. Telling our stories humanizes us, and it eases the us-them nature of the debate. Second, we should confirm that we mean the same things by the terms that we're using. I suspect lots of people aren't having an apples-to-apples -apples conversation about DEI. What is equity, anyway? How do we know if inclusion is achieved? Clearly defining the problem is key to scientific inquiry, and I think social inquiry requires something similar. Reaching consensus on these terms helps to keep your larger debates productive and brief. Here's my way of thinking about DEI. Diversity is just variety. Equity is accountability. Inclusion is community. You need all three to have a sense of belonging and security. Disability advocate Jamie Shields puts it another way, quote, equality is everyone getting a pair of shoes. Diversity is everyone wearing a different type of shoe. Equity is everyone getting a pair of shoes that fits them. Inclusion is feeling respected and valued, whether you're wearing shoes or not, unquote. Third, the not-so-secret secret to eradicating DEI forever? Work together and solve the damn problem. Just get it done. Drop the politics, debate solutions, try new things, and for God's sake, give social media a rest. Just do the work. There's a lot of money to be made by whining about the problem, and some people won't be able to give that up. Step over them and keep working. Struggle towards a solution. Every day you spend attacking people on the other side of the issue, whatever side you're on, is a day wasted. That's another day we hear those distant voices, the stories of our grandmothers, the pressures of our people, and they will never stop crying out until we get this done. There is one and only one surefire way to end diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Make America diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Remember that DEI programs are not merely about peaceful workplaces free from conflict. They're about breaking cycles. They're about disruption and redemption. DEI is for all the kids who were told about migrant farm workers and Holocaust victims and Marsha P. Johnson and Emmett Till and internment camps and indigenous boarding schools and burst into inconsolable tears wondering how anyone could be so evil to another person. Refusing this task means you don't actually want a meritocracy. You want peace and quiet. If you believe in judging people by their hard work, but you won't do the hard work of creating a true meritocracy, then what does that make you? Bigotry is as horrid as dehumanization. The idea that anyone would think their skin makes them a better person is moronic. And it's just as toxic living in a world where your skin color makes you fare worse. Perhaps that's the first step on a new path forward, owning the interlocking awfulness of our pasts. When in doubt, 
tell your story. We all have cycles to break. We will break them faster if we do it together. And do it now. That's what I think. Tell me what you think. Questions, comments, thoughts in the chat. I obviously haven't been looking at them, so I appreciate it if you have dropped some in already, but I will take a look at your questions and thoughts and comments. And we will move on from this in just a minute, but I wanna close the loop on this piece. Thank you for indulging and listening. Would love to know what you think, if this rings true, if this rings false to you, if you have questions, I wanna hear your thoughts on this. We'll hear from you when we come back. Welcome back. Let's get to some of your comments on my thoughts about how to end DEI forever. Thank you, by the way, to those of you who did share your comments. If you want to find the piece to share it, you can find the link to my Substack at nightlightjoshua.com. Many of the pieces on the Substack are behind a paywall, but this one is free, available for everyone, so please feel free to share that around. Hopefully, you will also become a follower on Substack so you can get more of my essays and articles in there. I've written a number of them from a personal perspective, they're usually titled something like From the Heart or From My Heart about more personal aspects of my life and how it's affected my views on things. But thank you for your support of that and thanks to those of you who have read and shared this piece already. Let me get to, oh gosh, a bunch of comments. Thank you very much. Let me get to, let's see, I'll, st I'll just start at the top. Solange the First, hello, welcome. Says, God bless your mom, yes. Yes, indeed. I love that. <clears throat> I love that quote from Abraham Lincoln. I think it is all that I am and all that I ever hope to me to be. I owe to my angel mother. So yes, absolutely. God bless her. Absolutely. And I think she's watching. She's usually watching. In fact, I know she's watching because she texted me and told me that she liked the piece. So thank you. Nora writes, I am glad to hear you read this aloud. I had already read it several times, but your aural framing made some of it a bit clearer to me, specifically owning the interlocking awfulness of our pasts. When in doubt, tell your story. Yes, exactly. I think that is something that, you know, my career in public radio made extremely clear because that's what public radio does, right? Television deals in pictures, public radio deals in stories. There's no reason that television couldn't deal more in stories, and I think it needs to, because that's how we make sense of the world. Stories are our most effective way of conveying meaning. They're often the first thing we look for, and I think there's something kind of unnatural, is that the right word? Maybe. Something weird, let's just call it, about something robotic and algorithmic about asking people what they think and not asking why they think it. More to the point, asking people what they think as a way to kind of categorize them and put them in this neat little box so you know where to file them, as opposed to asking how they came to think that way so that you deal with them as an individual who also connects with what may be in this box or that box. That needs to flip. That needs to change. And I think that we have a lot of people who feel like the stories of people of color don't really apply to them or connect to them because they hear it so much and they are never asked for their own story 
or when I hear sometimes whites will say, or even men talking about women's issues saying, well, you don't know how hard we've had it. I think it's a mistake to shut down that part of the conversation. I think when someone gives you an opening, go for it, right? Like what, go for it. If you believe you're correct, there should not be one opening on the table that anyone else could bring up that would make you just pull the plug out of the wall and power down and walk away. Well, what do they mean by that? You don't know how bad we've had it. Okay, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Well, you don't know what Irish immigrants went through coming to this country. Okay, not exactly the same thing. And there were some Irish people who were also slave owners and slave masters. Or did you miss Gone with the Wind? However, if within that, and I'm just using this for an example, if within that there's a common bond you can build, then that's a way to advance the conversation. Because they're right, there was a time in this country, not that long ago, when if you were Irish, you were not considered white. If you were German, if you were Italian, if you were German, if, or if you were Polish, definitely if you were Jewish, you were not considered white. So the idea of relegation is something that can be discussed as a common bond. Was it the exact same thing? No. Was it to the same degree? They didn't say it was. But it gives you something to start with. It gives you just a little bit of a bridge, or at least, <laughs> maybe not the bridge, the first plank of the first part on the first step of the bridge. But hell, it's more than you had a second ago. Let them say it. Let people who are trying to reach out to you, reach out to you. And I think a lot of us are way too quick to just say, it's not the same thing, and just smack their hand away. What results are you getting for that? Is that working for you? Are you getting what you want? Do you feel good about the outcome? Okay, keep doing it. But if someone extends the hand to you, if they're even trying to reach in your direction, reach back. Even if they're reaching the wrong way, you can't redirect them until you make contact. You're close, come this way. It's over here. You're close though. That kind of validation, I've seen it work over and over and over and over and over. In tough situations where people are trying to talk to one another, it works. It works so well. And we do have a lot of interlocking awfulness in our history. That same mentality that says it's okay to dehumanize anybody threatens everybody because you never know who's going to be at the top of the food chain next election cycle, and then the tables are turned and the roles are reversed. It cuts across so many lines that I think the minute you got that, you got to jump for it. You got to jump for it. Holly writes, I feel like the concept that mediocrity is a privilege for the advantaged should get some more sunlight. Yes, mama, exactly. <laughs> I like that. Mediocrity is a privilege for the advantaged. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Now, the flip side of this, of course, is I can hear someone saying black excellence. You don't hear people talking about white excellence. Right. You don't because we don't have to. No one ever questioned you for the color of your skin. No one ever, like historically, that doesn't happen. So the context is completely different. So it's okay to have to achieve a little bit less and still be able to get farther. Whereas if you are, a, and I'm, I'm just talking about the black experience because that's the one I know the best. If you are black, historically, you had to go above and beyond just to get noticed. And there is tremendous distrust 
that those systems that caused that need for overachieving have been properly dismantled. Maybe they have. We don't believe it. We ain't buying it yet. We don't, I don't know. We don't see it yet. And that's exactly what it is. I think this is also wrapped up in part of the argument around college admissions and hiring. One of the things that keeps coming up in the flip side of this is in some of the rhetoric around, let me see if I can find it really quickly. Hang on one second. Mm, where is it? Here it is. After the drama with Boeing and the latest issues with the 737 MAX, Elon Musk posted that the issues have had to do with um, hiring people of color and being more focused on the, uh, the, the races of the people that they're hiring. Let me see if I can find it really quickly. Here it is from NBC News. Let's see. There we go. Musk's statements on the Musk's decision to wade into the subject of airline safety follows discussions that were sparked when a panel blew off a Boeing jet while it was flying. Which, can we just have that conversation for a second? What? How does that happen? <laughs> Where you just kind of on a flight and all of a sudden, it just blows off the side. And you're just sitting there. The wind is rushing. And you just have to sit there just eating peanuts like it's cool. And just holding on to your beverage and trying to click your way through this, this seat back TV and, and, and just trying not to look at it and looking for something to watch on TV, just trying to watch a playoff game. Meanwhile, to your left, it's just the open sky is next to you like, what? <laughs> I, I, have ne I have never peed on myself publicly, but I would pee on myself publicly if it meant I, I didn't have to scream. You, you, have to, you have to pick your battles sometimes, and I would lose that one. I don't, mm, mm, could you go mad? Mm. Lord Jesus. Anyway, back to Elon Musk. Musk's statement on the topic started Tuesday, which was earlier this month, when he responded to a user on X who speculated that IQ scores of United Airlines pilots who went to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, were lower than the average IQ of Air Force pilots. Musk replied to that post with his own attack on programs that promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Quote, quote, it will take an airplane crashing and killing hundreds of people for them to change this crazy policy of D-I-E, Musk wrote, misspelling the D-E-I acronym. So this is not ancient history. Elon Musk is doing this ish right now. And the idea that the color of your skin has nothing to do with the content of your character has not quite penetrated yet. Elon Musk is one loudmouth, but he is a loudmouth with a hell of a lot of followers and a lot of supporters. And I don't want to extrapolate that the Elon Musks and the Joe Rogans of the world predominate necessarily, but there's so many of them in so many positions of prominence that it has to be discussed. This was this month that Elon Musk intimated that trying to get black and brown people in cockpits makes flying inherently less safe. Anyway, so you'd rather have a mediocre white pilot than an excellent black pilot or a black pilot striving for excellence. Like they're just gonna let the brother walk in and 
just kind of sit down in the cockpit and be like, where do I put the key in? I don't see the ignition switch. And we're just going to take off on it. Really? That's the way this is going to go? All right. Fine. <sighs> Yo ass. Anyway, back to comments. Sarah writes on YouTube, yes, I hear more and more people pointing out that black people are not a monolith. This is what I experienced. It's an important point. Yes, we are not a monolith. There are common bonds in the experiences for sure, but there are a lot of differences, including I have had a number of conversations more recently, and, and there's a lot to be discussed in this. I think I just saw a piece from the Washington Post on this today, maybe? about black people's experiences with religion and black people's experiences with faith. We are largely churched, but we are largely unchurched. A third of the Muslims in America are African-American. There are many African-Americans who are agnostic, who are atheist, who are Jewish, and who practice any number of other faiths. Christianity probably prevails, for sure. But within that, you've got more conservative denominations, like the Church of God in Christ, or like Baptist denominations, you have more progressive denominations like AME churches and everything in, and then you got a lot of independent churches and mega churches and everybody's experience is gonna be a little different. Everybody doesn't preach the prosperity gospel of T.D. Jakes and Creflo Dollar. And yes, his last name is actually Dollar. But we all have a different experience of that. But it's easy to assume, you know, you watch the color purple and you figure that everybody grew up with a pastor saying, God is trying to tell you something. That's not the way that it always goes. But a lot of us, a lot of us did have that experience of the preacher who said, God told me ha, to tell you ha, that every little thing ha, is going to be all right. Not everybody grew up with that. And not everybody likes that. But I think in more recent years, it's become okay for black folks who didn't grow up in church or don't consider themselves Christian to be like, no, <laughs> no. But that's another part of that monolithic experience. It's important to understand, I think, for the larger context of the black experience historically. But yeah, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of variation there. Tremendous amount of variation. And that's just, that's just one version of it. Mercedes Pujol Garcia on YouTube. Hello. Welcome. It's a lot to digest. I will have to read several times before I can react to it. That is a great reaction. I think that not having an opinion is always an acceptable opinion. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you saying that you would like to think it through further. That's, that's a huge compliment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And back to Solange the First, who writes on YouTube, have you done your family ancestry for your own curiosity? If, I've missed, I, if I missed it, if you've already covered it previously, I apologize. No problem. That's okay. You're not supposed to catch everything. Sorry. You, you were out of class the other day. Did you catch where I did my 23 and me? No, I have not done my family ancestry. Although I have done my 20, <laughs> I have done my 23 and me actually. And it found, I think what most many of our 23, three and me's found, I'm looking for it right now. Ancestry report. I am, can I share this screen? I don't think I can. I'm not sure I can share my phone screen right away, but I'm 82.8% Sub-Saharan African, shock. Mostly West African. Oh, there's more detail. I'm glad you brought this up because there's some details on here that I had not looked at before. 73.7% .7 West African. And the new details are that the largest piece of this are Ghanaian, Liberian, and Sierra Leonean, which is 32.1%. And then 24% Nigerian, which covers a number of regions in 
Nigeria, because within a number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, especially the countries from whom slaves were taken or people from whom people were put into slavery, there are multiple tribes within those areas. And so part of it is figuring out not only what countries, but also what tribes you connect to. So I appreciate you asking, because now I know. So it looks like the greater Accra region, Accra is the capital of Ghana, is the largest piece. And if you look on a map, which I will show you, a map of West Africa. It's pretty, that's pretty logical because a lot of these countries along the Atlantic coast, here we go. This is the Atlantic coast of Africa. I'll zoom out a bit. So US, Atlantic, and many of the nations that were hit by the transatlantic slave trade. We're talking largely from Senegal down toward Nigeria. So you've got Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Sierra Leone, Liberia, the Ivory Coast, Ghana, Togo, Benin, Nigeria, Cameroon to an extent. So this is kind of logically where we're talking about. So that means the range is for me, at least according to my 23andMe, is more in this area over here, closer to the Gulf of Guinea and further away from the Atlantic, not quite so close to Senegal, because here's Nigeria, here's Ghana. So that would mean that my ancestry is mostly in this region right here. Hmm. Thank you, 23andMe. So now we know. <laughs> now we know. I'm glad that you asked. And now I have the information one day when we go to take our our odyssey to Africa. I would love to go over to Africa and actually look through uh, Ghana and Nigeria and, and trace this back a little bit farther and see where it goes. Oh, the rest of it. 15.8% um, Northwestern European. Also, new detail on how British and Irish I am. Looks like, likely, Ireland. Significant ancestry from the Republic of Ireland, particularly County Cork and County Dublin, County Limerick and County Wexford. So. We're all a little bit, well, a little bit European for reasons that are obvious, but for me, mostly British and Irish, and then 1% East Asian, and then trace of other places. Not very much Caribbean. Um, and my family apparently does have some um, tribal ancestry, but not sure exactly where that hails from. So there you go. That's, that's who I am. That's who I am. Um, but thank you all for hearing my piece. Please do share it. Share it as far and wide with other people. I'd love to hear what they think. Love to keep a conversation going about what to do about DEI. These are issues that need to be dealt with. And I do not believe that being blithe about them or being you know, just categorical and blunt about them is gonna help anyone. There's a lot of people, like I said in the piece, there's a lot of people who make a hell of a lot of money just trying to stay mad. And to them I say, Stay mad. <laughs> Just please stay mad. You, you ain't got the range. We're moving over you. We're stepping past you. We're stepping over you. Stay mad. We're going to get together, get good things done, and do the work, and then try to make America great. <laughs> Not again, but make it great. Make it greater. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. Just don't hinder me. Just stay out my way, and I'll stay out your way, and then we'll, we'll get together and try to do some good. And that's really the goal. I don't think that the... I don't think that the Bill Ackmans of the world are actually against the idea 
of a society where people of color are treated equitably. I don't believe that. I don't know what's in Elon Musk's head. He may not know. But I don't think that most of the people who oppose these programs believe that blacks are inferior to whites, for example. I think that they're just not clear on how they are actually gonna be useful, and I think their experiences have soured them to the idea in general. That's why I think people need to tell their stories, not for the sake of convincing them to view their own lives differently, because you are the expert on your life. I can't argue your life, which is partly why I like people telling their stories, because your story is your story. You own that. But for the sake of just being able to see one another clearly, as opposed to pro-DEI, anti-DEI, whatever the hell that means, those characteristics are just not useful. They're not, they're clearly unproductive. And I think if we can move past those, we can do some good. We can do some actual good. Moving on. It's a very packed day. I didn't expect it to be quite this fraught, but here we are. Talking about all kinds of, of deep things. Today I wanted to mark a birthday, or rather an anniversary, that I think a lot of us have a personal connection to. This isn't particularly a heavy subject, but I thought it was interesting. Today is the 40th anniversary of this thing over here that I'm using right now. It's this, this device, I, I cannot show you. I wish I could show you, can I? Do I have, I don't think I have my, my phone active, no. But it's the, it's the 40th anniversary of this thing, this device that I'm using over here. It's the one that, that, that is related to this device in my hand right here. Macintosh. On this date in 1984, the first Apple Macintosh computer went on sale. So today, the Mac turns 40. If that <laughs> makes you feel like, oh my God, it's 40, how many years have I been here? Same girl, same. 40 years since the Apple Macintosh came out. Seth Godin, who is one of my favorite thinkers on technology and business, wrote a piece about it on his excellent blog, which is called Seth's Blog. It's just seths.blog. Seth Godin writes about and uh, speaks about uh, innovation and, and basically corporate greatness, the effort of companies and enterprises and organizations to do great, unique things that stand out and that make a difference, or as he likes to put it, make a ruckus. I love Seth Godin's work. And a lot of what he writes about are the examples of how certain organizations do amazing things. He writes in this particular blog entry about Guy Kawasaki, who was one of the early evangelists for Apple. He's also a good one to, to read if you're interested in what makes companies great and what makes companies impressive, Guy Kawasaki. And the kind of the challenge of, of doing this kind of work. What he put at the end of his piece was, was pretty interesting. He writes, Seth Godin writes, I'm typing this on perhaps the 20th, okay, 40th, Mac I've owned. The pace of innovation has now slowed to a crawl as Apple seeks to take profits instead of following the path that the Mac started down two generations ago to not just sell a product, but to change the culture. Even if they've lost the instinct to make something insanely great, they've taught people all over the world to want to do so. The change we make is at the heart of the work we're able to do. I think that's a good point. And I think a lot of people who 
are less than delighted with Apple these days are less than delighted because Apple began as a company built around delight. Not just around the idea of making something that was really good and really useful, but in Steve Jobs' words, insanely great. Apple set that bar for itself. Is it clearing that bar? Is it meeting it? Tell me what you think, but I think it's not. I think in a way it's tough, right? Because once you invent a new way of communicating with the world, once you invent an entire industry, like podcasting exists because Apple made up the word and then had to be browbeaten into giving us more data on how our podcasts are doing, but we won't have that conversation. But once you've done that, like what's your next act? It's hard to come up with a next act. Also, to be fair, there are other things that Apple is working on. Apple has been working on, reportedly, on a self-driving car. Car and Driver reported just today that this car is now delayed until at least 2028. And don't, don't pay too much attention to this picture. We don't actually, it, who knows what exactly the, the image is gonna be, gonna be like. Car and Driver, oh, I beg your pardon. Car and Driver is attributing to Bloomberg. I beg your pardon. Bloomberg is reporting, excuse me, I missed the attribution. Bloomberg is reporting that Apple is dialing back the self-driving car features, delaying it back to 2028. This is something that has been talked about in Silicon Valley for a while. There are some self-driving vehicles that are running up and down the streets of San Francisco and Las Vegas and elsewhere, particularly uh, Uber and Lyft vehicles. So the technology is already in motion. There's also a big move to get more 18-wheelers, more tractor trailers and commercial vehicles to be self-driving vehicles. As I think I've said on this program before, that debate's over. If we could fly William Shatner into low Earth orbit on a self-driving rocket, the debate over taxi drivers is over. That industry is dead. It is just a matter of time. But those jobs are going to go away lickety-split when they do. Silicon Valley is dealing with a whole lot of layoffs right now. There was just another thousand that were announced at a variety, thousand jobs that are being lost at a variety of Silicon Valley companies. They literally hired people to write the AI code that will render them obsolete. They wrote their own jobs out of existence, which I find amazing. And I don't know how that's gonna end. But the goal for the safe driving car, the self-driving car, the safe self-driving car, that's the real, oh, Freud, paging doctor, that's exactly what the car should be. And we're not sure that it really is yet. But that's partly why they're scaling it back. Because the self-driving technology works really quite well but it's not good enough to just deploy and let us really kind of take our hands off of the wheel, literally. Companies are making a lot of progress, they're just not there yet. One of the pieces of this article gets into the levels of driving automation, which I find kind of interesting. There are multiple, and we're not all the way up where we need to be. The lowest level, what they call level zero here, has to do with warnings, momentary assistance. Some cars can do this now already. Things like braking automatically, lane departure warnings. You may have that on your car, I've got it on mine. That's a form of automation. Level one is helping you steer, like centering you in the lane, adaptive cruise control so that it speeds up and slows down and adapts to the car in front of you. Level two does all of that at once. Level three is getting you through a traffic jam. Slow traffic, variable threats, people probably trying to cost between another car, can it do that? Level four, driverless taxi, basically. 
may not have pedals, may not have a steering wheel, and then level five can drive everywhere all the time and do all the things that human beings can do. That's the holy grail. That's where we would need to be. Presumably, Apple's working toward that. That would be kind of incredible. That would be a kind of insanely great product. Would you buy one? Would you drive one? What would it take to get you in one? That's the big question. I don't know. Oh, Joseph, are you being a smart aleck? Joseph wrote, but will the Apple car have windows? Get it? Yeah, I know, I know. Goodness. The Windows car will probably have app will probably run on Apple the way it goes. Microsoft will probably bite off of them. Speaking of which, Microsoft briefly passed Apple as the world's most valuable company for a split second, at least on paper. Uh, thanks to its investment in ChatGPT, their market capitalization broke $2.859 trillion. Wow. Oh my goodness. But see, here, here's the other thing. They also have this device, the Vision Pro, the, the visor, which is an interesting kind of device. They, there's, they posted a video of the Apple Vision Pro online. This is part of the demo of it. You put it on and basically cameras depict the world around you. You're not really looking through it. You're looking at a screen that shows you what is on the outside. And you respond and use icons by looking at them. And then you tap your fingers together to kind of click and indicate what you want to use. It works the same way whether you're going through galleries of photos or watching television, and it kind of projects it in front of you as if the object is actually there, right in front of you. When you click a picture, it dims everything around that image to kind of highlight that one image. If you want to resize it, you pinch and zoom like you're grabbing the edge of an easel or an edge of an image, and it just kind of responds to your touch. So it's an interesting device. It looks like it could have some kind of knee applications, Here's the thing, when Apple Vision Pro launches next month, it's gonna be super expensive. It's gonna be like $3,500 each. Guess what apps you will not be able to use when Apple Vision Pro launches? According to Variety, it won't have Netflix, YouTube, or Spotify when it launches. None of those three companies has built an app for it yet. So then who's it for? Would you spend $3,500, $3,500 to buy one of these? It depends, I guess, on what you would do with it. I mean, she looks pretty slick wearing it, but like, I, I don't know if I need the Apple Vision Pro to look slick. Uh, some of us look slick all the time. But it's interesting, right? It's an interesting tool. Would you use it? Is this what we want from Apple now? Is kind of neat and interesting. Now, in defense of the Apple Vision Pro, I said the exact same thing about this, about my Apple Watch. I resisted getting an Apple Watch for a minute. What do I need an Apple Watch for? But when I bought one, because I didn't have a watch, I was like, okay, fine, I'm, just, I'm gonna get one, see if I like it, if I hate it, I'll take it back. I use this thing every single day. I use it all the time. This is one of the most useful tools I have ever bought. And when I don't have it, I'm like, oh my God, I forgot my watch. So it's valuable. But I think sometimes the value doesn't actually show up until people play with it. And then you're like, oh, that's what I need this thing for. That's what I would use this thing for. Now, could I live my life without this watch? Yes. <clears throat> yes, of course I could. Of course I could. <laughs> sure, of course I could. Why? Why would I? But once you start to play with it and you realize, oh, this is helpful. 
then you find ways to use it. So it might come down to having one of these tools that you just kind of start playing with. And then once people play with it, they're like, oh, that's what we would use it for. And then it becomes clear. Plus it does look pretty slick. I think this is more useful for things like, for example, the, uh, the Mario Kart ride at Universal Studios Hollywood uses some augmented reality. I think that's where it might be useful for those kinds of applications, super useful. And it's 3D. The other thing the Apple Vision Pro does is it is a 3D camera. It will take 3D images through the camera without an additional camera attached. Those, what you're looking at inside the, the screen that sort of re-represents the world to you, that's those cameras. So that could be kind of slick, but who knows? Um, and we know what's gonna, hey, we know what every one of these new technologies is used for once it hits the market, adult content. That is going to be one of the core original uses of the Apple Vision Pro. Mark my words, 3D adult content is about to flourish in the next year, I think, if this catches on. But you can also look at 3D with stereoscopic glasses without having to use one of these headsets. And with the existing concerns about the proliferation of certain kinds of criminal pornography, particularly involving children, I wonder how Apple's gonna deal with that. They have taken strong stances on this in the past, but there's only so much they can do to address it. So, I don't mean to be blue about this, but just about every new technolo technological medium, with the exception of radio, has been used to create adult content. It would be naive to not suggest that that would be part of the frontier of this and to, to think about it. It's just, it's gonna happen. It's going to happen. However, I think the path forward for Apple, and this is my point and then I'll let you go. Excuse me. I beg your pardon, excuse me. I think there's a common conversation to be had about Apple's future and our political environment today. We, we have these conversations about like feeling disenchanted and feeling disgruntled and despairing about the future and all that kind of stuff. I think the reason that Apple is trying to find its way is because Tim Cook, the CEO, for better or worse, does not share one key quality of Steve Jobs, and that's vision. I think, I think that's what we really fell in love with Apple for. And I don't think people, I don't want people to forget, you probably know this, because smart, brilliant, sophisticated, you. I don't want people to forget the actual innovation that put Apple on the map. In a few weeks, my fair city of Las Vegas is gonna host the Super Bowl. And Apple actually invented something that I think has way more impact than even the iPhone, or at least as much, and definitely more than this Vision Pro thing, at least right now. Apple invented the Super Bowl ad because when they announced the Macintosh, they did so in the very first big budget Super Bowl ad. Ridley Scott, that Ridley Scott, the director who made Alien and all of these amazing films, directed a Super Bowl ad themed around 1984 by George Orwell. To hear people tell it, even he didn't quite get the idea or see if this would work, but he was up for the challenge and he figured he'd give it a try. And so they made this remarkable ad. But the ad did something that Super Bowl commercials now 
often do, but maybe don't need to. Some Super Bowl commercials get this right. Very few do. The best do. It's what the ad is missing. What's the one thing that this ad about the Apple Macintosh does not have? The Macintosh. You never see the computer. The product is not in the ad. <laughs> Crazy, right? But what is in the ad? The point. The ad's not about the product. The ad's about the point. It's this idea that everyone doesn't have to be a drone, doesn't have to be a worker bee, doesn't have to be compliant and subservient and a carbon copy of the person to your left, right, in front of you and behind you, that it is still possible to literally outrun these other forces and make your way forward and do something remarkable. It's about smashing these systems, which I think is a very American idea. This idea of having power and agency despite the systems that are around us is a really powerful thing. I think it's a very powerful idea right now in 2024 with this election. I think it would be super easy for us to show this to somebody right now on the campaign trail in any of the early primary states, South Carolina or Nevada, and have a conversation that locks right into this exact same conversation, point for point. Now, do our elected leaders match this need? Are we kind of you know, living in this, in this ethos? Or are we? I, it's gonna look different for different people. And I wouldn't wanna generalize. I don't think there is a general answer for this. But that's the point. And I think that if Apple is missing anything, it's missing out on the opportunity to inspire us at this moment. And I think whoever takes that opportunity is gonna seize that future. I think that one of the areas where, whether you like him or not, where Donald Trump succeeded was in making people feel something for him. Why do you follow somebody so illogically? It doesn't make any logical sense. You're right, it doesn't make any logical sense but it doesn't have to. That's not the point of politics. Abraham Lincoln was correct when he said, with public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Sentiment, feeling, drives our decisions far more than logic, whether we like it or not. That's how we're hardwired. Apple figured that out when they did that 1984 ad that made people think about the idea of the liberty and the freedom of being different in a system that tries to make you comply. That's why they knew who their consumers were. And then once they figured out who their tribe was, those people evangelized Apple to others by saying, it's fast, it's simple, easy to use, intuitive. All of that kind of stuff, that came later. How did Apple begin to, to tell people about the Vision Pro? They demonstrated it. Now, granted, there was that cute little ad of all these different characters putting goggles on, you know, Doc Brown and Back to the Future and the little girl and Up, but this is not why we would buy a Vision Pro. I would buy a Vision Pro because of what it said about me and because of the things that I do with it that speak to who I am. I think that's where a lot of our cultural conversations go sideways. 
I think that's where a ton of our political conversations get messed up, is in what it says about us, not what it says about the candidate or about the party or about the organization, but who we are reflected by the party, the candidate, the organization. And Apple did that and revolutionized Super Bowl ads. Those Budweiser Clydesdale ads that are so moving, those cute Coca-Cola ads with the teddy bears that make you feel all warm and fuzzy at the holidays, it's saying, who are you and how can we reflect something of you back? And I think if there is some gap between the press and the public for sure, but politicians in the public as well, it's in that inability to connect, to say, I see you. I see something about you that I can articulate in a way that'll make you go, yeah, that's right. And then once we do that, then we can make a deeper connection. Like Donald Trump or not, he found a way to articulate that. He's not particularly brilliant. He just exploited something that was right on the surface that no one else had quite grabbed. And that is now why he has an entire political party at his back end call. I think if Joe Biden stands a chance in 2024, he's going to have to do that. He already ran once by saying, I can't allow Donald Trump to be president again. You did that once. What else you got? And I think that is part of what, if people want Donald Trump not to win the presidency, they're going to have to figure that out because Donald Trump has nailed that message. He doesn't even have to make the case anymore. That's why he spent time in court rather than on the campaign trail, because being in court to his core supporters says, see, they don't want us to win. They're doing everything they can to keep us out. And so I'm going to be here fighting for you. But I'm, I already know you're going to vote for me. So I'm going to be here fighting the real fight. That's why that works. And the bemusement I hear sometimes from some pundits and people in the press to like, he's not even going on the campaign trail. If I was him, I probably wouldn't need to either because I know what the message is. The message is already clear. I think, hopefully, Apple can find that message again and not just kind of sell itself on cool points. But I don't know. I think the future is going to belong to those of us who can articulate that kind of thing and who can really inspire people and fire them up to say, you are someone who believes what I believe, and that's why I'm going to follow you. You're someone who wants the things that I want and who values the things that I value. That's why Apple became such a gigantic company. Now, I guess they don't have to do that anymore, but it'd be nice to know that they still remember, if they remember. Let me look through the comments for just a moment before we call it a day. Nora asks, do we have enough shared cultural competence to make an ad like that work today? That is a very good question. I don't know. But I think so. I think there are still some things on a national basis that, that, that catch our attention. I think that it is still, I think that when things happen, like for example, the murder of George Floyd, that was a moment where everybody talked about it all at the exact same time. I think the attack against Israel by Hamas Everyone talked about that all at the exact same time. Ukraine, eventually everyone did. I think there are still things that people, that cut across all those different lines. They're just kind of the biggest things. I think in terms of pop culture, very different. I don't know what other book, for example, you could put an ad around besides, or that would have the kind of connection as 1984 by George Orwell. 
I'm not sure what other more contemporary book you could do that with. That could be tough. So maybe in that regard, like, I mean, unless it's something like Harry Potter or The Hunger Games, maybe, I don't know, but it's possible. It's possible. I think we still have cultural competence about things like, excuse me, around things like Game of Thrones. That was a big cultural moment. Still a lot of Marvel and DC Comics fans. That remains a big cultural moment. But they're not the way that they were. I don't think they necessarily have to be, but things still emerge. You know, Disney is trying to get its animation department back together, but Encanto was a huge hit. You ask, if you say to somebody, we don't talk about Bruno, they probably know what you mean. They get it because either they saw it or they saw enough clips and memes of it that they at least get the reference. That's the other piece of cultural competence that I think works in the direction of connection, that you can move culture in so many more ways than just seeing the movie, hearing the album. Maybe you hear a clip of the song in a reel on Instagram, or you see a meme about the movie in a story on TikTok or Facebook or X, and you begin to kind of become aware of it in various ways that allow you to sample so much more. So yeah, I think maybe it's possible. I don't see why it's impossible. It just won't happen in the same ways, but it could, it could still absolutely happen. Holly, oh, of course. Wouldn't you like to be a Pepper too? Yes, exactly. I love that ad where you're kind of <laughs> unique for the same reasons as all the other unique people. And what, a, um, what an interesting um, message that you're gonna be unique like all these other unique people. David Naughton dancing around, oh, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper. I, those ads are so, so fascinating. And then it lost his career because he did an American Werewolf in London where he was nude for a split second and Dr. Pepper was like, oh my God, men don't have butts, we can't show that on screen, you're fired. And then they, they dropped him from the ad, which is just goofy, very, very strange. Um, oh, yeah. Solange, thanks for nothing, Nora. It's going to be stuck in my brain for the rest of the day. And then Nora made it worse by citing a different song. I'm not going to sing it out loud because it'll live in your head forever. And the people on the podcast, if you're listening audio only, I don't want you to be injured by me actually singing the song and getting it stuck in your head forever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that one. Let's just say it's a Disney ride. I will leave it at that. I won't go any further than that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I will not, I will not go any farther than that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so tempted. Uh, you know what? I'm not, I'm just going to play the theme. I'm going to play my theme and I, I'm not even going to mention the song because it's too tempting. Um, we've shared a lot this hour. It's been fun, but there is so much that we share that, uh, it's time we're aware. Hey, I really appreciate you being part of the show today. Have plenty more to talk about tomorrow. Remember, you can go to nightlightjoshua.com to find links to the podcast, to read that article on Substack about DEI and share it with others. Buy some Nightlight merch or put a few dollars in the online tip jar. Please do stay in touch. I treasure this time so much, and I really appreciate that you have decided to spend time with me today. So until we meet again, I am Joshua Johnson. Thank you, as always. I will see you tomorrow. And as always, keep on shining because someone, somewhere, needs your light right now.